Welcome to another podcast by Victoria Point Baptist Church. We are glad you have joined us today. If you would like to connect with us as we aim to introduce people to Jesus by connecting with our local community and beyond, you can find out more at vpbc.com.au. How are you all doing? Are we excited to be here? That was so underwhelming. We're going to work on that. We're going to get there. It'll be good. Um, can, we, can we just go through that passage once more? I, I'm just struck by a few things in it, and I wanted to just take the time to read through it all. So from Acts chapter 2, verse 42, it says, They devoted themselves. This is talking about the early church, so a group of people who had only recently become the church as we know it today. Um, Jesus had died just a short time before this and been resurrected. It's, so it's really fresh. It's new. It's exciting. So they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. It's a good passage. It's one of those ones where, if I'm being honest, if I was doing my daily devotion and Bible reading, I'd kind of skim through that to get to the interesting bits where Paul like narrowly escapes death or Stephen is stoned or something like that. But it's really rich. There's a lot there. So I, my hope tonight is that we'll be able to unpack some of that and, um, and get something out of it. Can I pray again? Is that okay? Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you that it is alive, it is rich, it speaks to us, Lord. Um, we just ask this evening that you would speak to us through it, Lord, that we'd be able to learn something new of you, that we would be challenged, we'd be convicted, we would be changed. In your name, amen. Okay, so it's easy to read the Bible and just chew through chapters. I don't know if you, if you read the Bible regularly, I hope so, but it's easy to just chew through chapters and, like I said, you get the interesting bits where there's a story about someone being stoned or something miraculous happening, and the bits like this, it's easy to sort of gloss over them or to just read them and be like, yeah, of course, um, but it's easy to forget the context that would have been sort of assumed knowledge by the people responding to the gospel at that time. So like I said, this is just such a short time after Jesus' death and resurrection that this is happening. This is, this is Christians who are, they, they don't have the, the New Testament as we have it. All they have is the, the in-person apostles who are, who are there in, in the flesh, uh, who are sharing things. Um, so the way that they responded to the gospel at this time, if you unpack it and think things through, it's a fairly logical and natural progression to learning that the Messiah was just here a month ago. Um, so the Jews were very idea of the aware that they were aware of the idea of a Messiah. They knew what the Messiah was. They've read the prophecies. They know um, that there was going to be this person from the prophets who is to be kind of a son of man or a son of David. He's referred to. But he's going to come to earth and he's going to be raised up and make things right. He's going to make the kingdom of heaven come again on earth. So they knew that this person was coming. To the point that when Jesus was alive and rolling around and doing miracles and stuff, it says specifically at one point that he fed the 5,000 and then immediately had to take off, had to run essentially because the people were like, this is fantastic. He's got food coming out the wazoo. Let's put him on the throne now and we'll be sorted for the rest of time. It'll be great. So he had to take off because he's like, no, no, that's not how this is going to work. Um, so the Jews, they knew that 
there, that there was to be a Messiah. Even, even non-Jews knew about this Messiah figure. You read just a couple of chapters later that there's an Ethiopian eunuch traveling along the road and he's reading the, the prophetic literature and Philip comes alongside. You might be familiar with the passage. Um, so the idea is that they're, they're familiar with the idea. They know that there's to be a Messiah. Also keeping in mind that the Jews as of people have suffered for generations. So they have had conqueror after conqueror roll through and wreck their stuff. It's been really unpleasant. It's, it, was, it was an unpleasant period of time to be a Jew, very honestly speaking. They've had the Assyrians, they've had the Persians under Alexander the Great, there was the Hellenistic period where there were the, the rulers at the time very systematically and deliberately tried to destroy, destroy the Jewish culture and the Jewish religion. And now it's the Romans. So the Romans are here, they're in charge. It looks like they've set up shop. They're not going to be going anywhere in a hurry. And the Jews are hurting. They don't like it very much. Their culture's being squashed. They're having to submit to the sovereignty and authority of someone else. They don't really have a king on the throne in the same way that they're used to. Things haven't really been quite right since basically Solomon and David before him. So the prophets at various times have appeared to power. You read through the New Testament, the Old Testament rather, sorry. And um, they've proclaimed to the people of Israel to turn back to God and to repent and prophesying, again, the coming of the Son of Man or a Son of David. So there are people who are aching for salvation. They were ready for it. They were on the cusp. They were looking for someone to come and to, to liberate them, to take away their, their shame and their pain and to give them freedom. So... You can understand why when Jesus comes through and he starts doing miracles and raising the dead and healing and miracles and signs and wonders, people are freaking out a bit. They're like, okay, okay, it's happening. This is him. And then he's crucified. Okay, it wasn't him. So when the apostles show up shortly after and they're doing signs and wonders, they're speaking in other languages, proclaiming the message of Jesus, again, healing, doing miraculous signs and wonders. Can you imagine what the response might have been like? So imagine being in that time. Imagine how ready you would be. You thought it was Jesus, maybe it wasn't. Now there's these other guys, his disciples, maybe it was one of them. Imagine what an emotional roller coaster the salvation message would have been to some of these Jews who might have actually been present at Jesus' crucifixion. You've got people in this group who were probably present at the crucifixion and maybe even calling out, crucify him, crucify him. Messiah came, but you crucified him. But he was resurrected but he's gone now. But he left the Holy Spirit. So it's kind of this, they're, they're going along this journey and now we're at this place where we find ourselves. Imagine the atmosphere. The Jews, they would have been really familiar with the Old Testament. They knew the prophecies about the Messiah. They knew that there was to be a person who came from Nazareth or Galilee, born in Bethlehem, and then that he was to be the savior of the world. And then you receive the Holy Spirit and all of a sudden everything's transformed and it's beautiful. And then you've got the people who spent the last three years journeying with the Messiah standing right in front of you. Can you imagine how hungry you would have been to spend time with them, to know what it was like to, to learn more, to grow, because you've finally got the final piece, that, that sort of the thing that clicks into place and, oh, everything just makes sense. I remember some years ago um, when we got married, I bought for my wife this wedding present. It was a turntable, like an old um, record player. Well, it's, it's a new one. But um, I plugged it all in, got my old secondhand Bee Gees record, put it on and started playing and there was just this hum 
Now, I don't know if anyone here has mucked around with sound equipment for very long. Matt probably is humming and like knocking, uh, he's understanding my frustration here, but when you've got everything plugged in with your sound system and there's just this kind of just ticking away behind everything else, it was infuriating. And I hunted for weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks. And when I finally went to an audio shop and someone said, hey, maybe you haven't grounded it. Here's a free 70 cents piece of copper wire. I just touched this here and there and I touched it and put it there and it just stopped. And there was just silence. And I went, oh, oh, thank you. That sense of click and everything just falls into place. That's what it would have been like for the Jews at this time receiving the gospel. Some of you who've had a, a really radical salvation experience might have a similar experience where, or if you've, you've been raised in a Christian faith, but you've had that moment where it clicks and you oh, Jesus loves me. Wow, that's incredible. And it, and it finally falls into place and it feels like you've got that, that missing piece of the puzzle. It's an incredible experience. So their response to this is where we pick up an axe. So there's two parts to this message. The title for this message, if you like, is that a renewed heart brings a renewed lifestyle. So let's look at that second part together first, the renewed lifestyle. We'll look at what the Jews, what, what, how they responded, what their lifestyle looks like, because I believe this passage is an intentional example of what our response as believers should be. I've got a little clicky thing here. I'd completely forgotten about it until just now. There it is. Does this work? Nope, this is the wrong one. Very cool. Very cool. I've, have I given you the link to an old one? I must have. That's awesome. All right. We're running blind here, folks. It's going to be great. Okay. I'm going to read it off here, and then I might need to get you to like really hot, fast, look some stuff up for me along the way, but we'll figure it out. It's going to be fine. Don't worry about it. Okay. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 to 17. If you've got your Bibles... If you want to, I don't know, or you can just take my word for it, that's fine. It says, All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. It's all scripture. Um, so, like I said, this is one of those passages that I would typically sort of just gloss over and like, yeah, yeah, this is what the church looked like. Great. But we can pick it apart, and each part has some meaning that we can draw. And I think this is useful for us in the modern church to sort of cross-reference. We can go, you know, when you're doing a puzzle and there's, you have the picture on the box and you know, that's what it's meant to look like and this is not what it is yet, but we're going to get there. So this is the picture on the box. This is Jesus saying, this is what this can look like. This is what it's meant to look like. So the first part, it says in verse 42... If you, if you want to get your Bibles open to this passage, it'd probably be useful to just go through it all because we're not going to have it up on the screen for a minute. So it pays off to bring your Bible sometimes. Who knew? Um, verse 42 says, They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Now, remembering what we know about the people who are responding, the Jews, this is a pretty natural response to what they've experienced. If you found out that the Messiah, Jesus, had been and gone last month and his apostles were in the room with you, you would probably be fairly devoted to what they wanted to say too. Not along with me if you can empathise with these people being pretty obsessed. I can imagine if I had the Apostle Paul in this room with me or Peter or Simon or any one of them in the room with me, I would 
be following him like your dog follows you around when you've got you, you, the dinner thing ready. I would not want to leave his side. I would be begging him for story after story after story. And I, when, at the end of the day, I'd be like, where are you going? You don't need to sleep. You need to tell me more about Jesus. Um, it's a natural response. So the good news is, is that we do still have access to the teachings of the apostle today. They were kind enough to write them down for us. It's called the Bible. Um, I want to draw particular attention to this phrase, devoted themselves. Just take a second while I have a drink of water and think about what devotion means in a literal sense. To be devoted to something. I wonder if the CIA watched my life for a week through cameras in my home or something creepy like that. If they were to watch my life from the outside for a week or two, what would they say I'm devoted to? Or if they were to watch you, what would they say you were devoted to? I reckon they might say I'm devoted to my smartphone, maybe video games. If I'm doing really well, they might say I'm devoted to my job or my wife. But would they say I'm devoted to the teachings of Jesus? Would they say I'm devoted to the teachings of Jesus? Or would they say I'm passively interested in the teachings of Jesus? Does my lifestyle paint a picture of someone who is devoted to the teachings of the apostles and to breaking of bread and to prayer? We've got it now? Hey, we've got it. Great. Thank you. And the breaking of bread and the prayer, that's the second part of that. The, these two things specifically, they're interesting because they're the two things that Jesus left instructions for really specifically. He said, this is how you pray. This is the Lord's Prayer. Our Father in heaven, holy is your name. Everyone can say it along with me if you want. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our trespasses and help us to forgive those who sin against us. Um, we, yeah, we know that one. Jesus left that as a specific instruction. And then right before he died, he also gave us specific instructions on how to do communion. He said, when you get together, break bread, remember my body that was broken. So Jesus left specific instructions. And there's a sense that the disciples and the apostles here in the early church, they're hearing this word, they are hearing the teachings of the apostles, and then they are immediately putting those things into practice in a literal, tangible way in their lives as they hear it. Um, are we devoted as a church to hearing and reading the, the teachings of Jesus and to obedience to that? Are we obeying what the Bible tells us to do? Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. Now, I'm not going to pretend to completely understand the Holy Spirit tonight and try and offer some justification as to why it moves sometimes and doesn't at others. Um, there are much smarter people than me that have a whole range of opinions on this. Um, but what I think I can lean on is that the Holy Spirit can and does move in power today. I know that that's true. Um, so are we a church that are bold enough to ask the Holy Spirit to move in the supernatural? To ask to see signs and wonders in our community? Are we praying for this? Do we have the boldness to step out in faith and pray for this in our community, in our church? And when it does happen, do we celebrate it? Do we share what's going on for the benefit of our brothers and sisters in Christ? Do we hunger for the supernatural or have we put it in the too hard basket? I know that there have been times, even in the last month, where I've had a Christian friend sharing that they've got some ongoing trauma or physical illness or whatever it is, 
and I've been convicted to pray for them in that moment, but I've suppressed it because I don't want to deal with the discomfort of it not working out. You know, when someone comes to you and says, I have this ongoing chronic pain, and you feel the Spirit nudge you and say, you need to pray for that person, but you go, but if I pray for it, that's going to be uncomfortable because it doesn't... This is, this is uncomfortable stuff. We don't like to talk about this as Christians, but this is... Do we have the faith to pray for these things? Do we have the faith to receive that prayer even when it doesn't work? Do we have the faith to rest in that? There have been times when I've laid hands and prayed over Christians and instead of asking for God to intervene in a miracle or in some kind of whatever, that I've prayed, I've defaulted to praying for God to give them the strength to endure it. It's an easy prayer to pray, but it's maybe not the fullness of what God has for us. Again, I don't pretend to have all of the answers and to fully understand why sometimes God moves and other times he doesn't. Well, I say he doesn't, but he seems to remain still. But I feel convicted in my life, and maybe you do too, that I've lost my zeal to see the Spirit moving in power. I've allowed discouragement to rob me of my boldness. I need to repent of that. So this is me repenting of that. All of the believers were together and they had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Now, when it says they had everything in common, it's not talking about they all were brunettes, they all were Jews, and they all were men. It means that they had all of their belongings in common. It talks about living in a kind of almost communist, that's a dirty word, but um, living together and they, they had a what's mine is yours attitude. And the context for this is that the early church had sort of bound together and congregated in Jerusalem. Um, it was a lot of people who had appeared at the time of Pente- Pentecost when the Spirit broke out in power, the disciples received the Holy Spirit. There was the, um, the Feast of Harvest, which was a really significant event in the Jewish calendar. And there would have been a lot of outsiders, Jews from around the country, who'd gathered in Jerusalem. And they kind of just stuck together because they went, you know what, this God, this Jesus, they were calling it the way at the time. They weren't called Christians yet. That was sort of a nickname that the Romans gave them later on. So following the way was so important to these early people in the church that they decided to give up what they had at home, put off going home for a couple of months and just stay together in community. So the people just sold stuff to make it work. They went, yeah, you you can stay with me. I'll sell this property so that we can pay the rent and feed you for a few months. It'll work out. You've got a group of people, a community going to radical inconvenience, some would say financially unwise lengths to facilitate community. Are we too busy for church? Is community a priority in our lives? If so, fantastic. Great, you're doing well. Are you willing to now sacrifice so that someone else can make it a priority? Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and they ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favour of all the people. I remember when I was in um, Youth with a Mission, I did a, a discipleship training school. Young people still in high school, come talk to me about it. It's a fantastic opportunity. I'd really advocate that you consider doing something like that as a gap year or whatever. Um, 
But every Friday night in YWAM was ministry night, so they'd get together and they'd have a solid couple of hours of worship and prayer and just move as the Spirit led. So people would pray for healing, people would pray for intercession over various churches and communities and missionaries around the community. Sometimes there would just be prayer for revival and stuff happened all the time. Like the Spirit just broke out. People were speaking in tongues and moving and it was, it was incredible, really, really awesome experience. Um, one of those, quietly in prayer on my knees, I had one of the most profound experiences of the Holy Spirit that I've ever experienced in my life. I broke out in laughter that I couldn't explain. It was overwhelming. It lasted for a whole five minutes that I was just written off. Um, it was great. But I remember finishing out that and going outside, walking out, and seeing my friends and being like, right, where are we going next? Like, what are we doing together? Like, it's nine o'clock at night. I don't care. I think we ended up walking a couple of kilometres to a Denny's. If you've ever been to the United States and been to a Denny's, you know that it's not worth a couple of kilometres walk. Um, but we were just excited to be together. We just wanted to remain in that, in that joy. And anyone, if you can remember your salvation experience, you might remember you just wanted to stay with people. You, you wanted to stay with your brothers and sisters. It's a new and an exciting thing. And that this example of the church says this is to continue. It's not just a, a one night and then you go back to your Monday to Friday. This is an ongoing passion. Every week after that, I looked forward to ministry night and spending time with people afterwards. Is your Christian community, and I'm not necessarily talking about this whole church, maybe just you and your family, you and your life group maybe, is it a place where you are excited to be? Are you excited to come together and to talk about Jesus? Is there a deep joy and a deep love for your Christians and brothers and sisters that, that represents your, your space? Or is it just something you do because the pastors kept on telling you that you had to and it was getting awkward? I know that there have been times in the last year, probably in the last month, where I've had to drag myself to church. Like, oh, I haven't been in a couple of weeks, I need to go. And it's so easy to lose that sense of excitement, to lose that gladness in your heart and let yourself just be caught up in emotions. And then the final part of this is, says, and the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Wow, daily. I really struggle with evangelism as a concept, being really genuine. Um, I really struggle because I'm, I'm a huge people pleaser and when people go oh, I don't really want to talk about that or I sense that I'm making someone uncomfortable I tend to back right off maybe you resonate maybe you don't but I, I really I struggle with it being very transparent um, I know it's something that should be a part of my life logically yes absolutely Jesus commands his disciples to go and make disciples of all nations um, when I think of evangelism a part of me thinks this um, The parable, in the, the parable of the sower in the book of Matthew, you'll probably know it well, is a, a sower, he throws out grain into his field with the purpose of growing a crop of grain. Um, and they all grow and they face different challenges. Some of them get choked out by weeds. Some of them land among stony ground and some of it grows. And sometimes I ask myself, how do I know that I am like the seed that fell on the good soil? How do I know that I'm in that good space? And the answer, I believe, is in Matthew chapter 13, verse 8. And it says, Still other seed was, it fell on good soil where it produced a crop, 160 or 30 times what was sown. Ooh, that's challenging. 
Um, I remember I went on this youth camp. Is anyone here who went to Faith Lutheran College back in the day? There's a couple of us here. Do they still do binger? Do they do binger when they, you went through? Yeah, six as well. That's incredible. Anyway, um, I went on this, this camp and there was a gruff, grisly old dude who I didn't like very much, but they, they gathered us together and did a little devotion on one of the nights. And the devotion basically said that we're kind of like plants in that we are always either growing or dying. I think in a physical sense, it's at around the age of 27, not along where you start dying, if that's, you, you know that that was true. I'm at 26 currently, so feeling good. Um, sucks to be you lot. I'll join you soon. Um, but in a spiritual sense, we're always either... If, if we are planted in good soil and the rocks and the, the thorns and the whatever aren't present in a metaphorical sense in your life, you should be growing to a point where you bear fruit and reproduce. And it's interesting, God didn't use this... Jesus didn't use this, this parable and say, and then produce a crop of flowers which then are pretty, and then that's the end of their lifestyle and they die. It's a, a crop of wheat, which is then re-sown to be more wheat. I remember when I was a kid, we, um, we had these canaries, wild change of topic. Um, we had some friends who went overseas on a missions trip, and I inherited this, this cage of canaries to look after. And as a kid, it was, it was really exciting um, because they, they started breeding, which as a, as a young child, probably would have been eight or nine, um, the miracle of childbirth was really special. So you watch them start to make nests, and then there's little eggs in there, and that's very cool. And then the eggs hatch, and there's these disgusting little pink creatures in there, which then grow feathers and became new canaries. And the firstborn of those new canaries, I had a bit of a soft spot for because it was the first one. And one day I was cleaning the, um, I was cleaning the cage, and it just took off, got out, and flew off. And I was gutted. I was so sad. Um, but then, the next day, I think Mum was out doing something in the garden, and she heard this cheeping from the lemon bush, and she went over, and it was it was there calling out to his family. So she chucked a blanket over and shoved it back in the cage. Got its taste of freedom, back you go. Um, but I was, I was stoked. I was so excited. And to the point where I actually I got on the bus the following morning and told the bus driver. I was a weird kid, a really weird kid. Didn't have many friends. Um, but the bus driver had to listen to me. So I sat in the front row and I told the bus driver how excited I was that I got this canary back. And he asked me about it from then on. He was like, oh, your canary's going to be good, mate. Um, <laughs> but like, I, this is a picture, I think, of what evangelism should look like. It's not soapbox Homer Simpson sitting here, the end is nigh, you're all going to hell. Although, you know, it's nuanced. I'm not going to go there in its entirety. But it's, it's, I was lost and now I'm found. It's good news. We should be excited about this. What if we were a church who... We were so excited about Jesus that we couldn't wait to get here. We were running in. We were talking about Jesus. You couldn't shut us up to start the worship because we're so busy telling each other what Jesus is, going, what Jesus is doing in our week. What if we went to small groups and we shared meals together with glad and see it? Maybe your small group looks like this. Ours is great. But I hunger for more of an excitement, of a, of a natural overflowing joy for Jesus, that we wouldn't sit in a small group circle and stare at our feet and 
kind of have to force our way through a conversation, but that we would just be hungry to talk about what's going on, how good Jesus is in our lives, that there'd be genuine testimony every day. Is that something, like nod or hum along with me if that's something that you're hungry for? So to recap, we've got this early church in the book of Acts. So they're showing these things. And if you, if you want to write these things down and cross it, I don't want, or don't, I don't care, it's fine. Um, but they, they were marked by a devotion to the word and to obedience to the word. They were marked by the spirit moving in power amongst them. They were people who are committed to community, to a, a radical, inconvenient level. They were a people filled with glad and sincere hearts. And then they were disciples who then turned and made disciples. Is this us? Is this our church? You know, look, look not literally because it would get awkward, but look, look around you in your life and think, is this, is this what your church circle looks like? Is this what you look like? Is this us at the moment? I know that there are at least a majority of those that I can probably do better on. Let's just take a moment as a church and allow ourselves to just respond to the Holy Spirit. Just read through those or reflect on the passage and just allow him to convict like what what are we missing what's what is absent in our lives that we aren't that god is leading us to return to let that hunger let's double back so i said earlier that there were two parts to this message and that this is the second part but it's, it, the point of this message isn't that discipline or hard work bring a renewed lifestyle, although discipline and hard work should and will be a part of our response if we're doing this right. I am so weak and so broken. I am flawed to my core. I know this. I'm not ashamed of it. Um, I'm hopelessly distractible. I'm led from one interest, one thing to another, like a, like a bull with a ring through my nose. I'm like, oh, shiny, I like that. Um, constantly. It's always one thing, but I'm always distracted. Um, the, this response, this, this level of devotion to the word is, is so far beyond anything that I can muster in myself. I don't have what it takes to do this. I'm not self-disciplined enough to stick to a diet. I can have food that I've cooked for myself to eat on a weeknight in my fridge, ready to put in the microwave, and I'll still go out and buy junk food. And I do that in a spiritual sense as well. If it were as simple as doing what's good for me, I'd have done it already. It's only the renewal of the Holy Spirit that can bring about this kind of transformation. Romans 12, verse 2, we all know it. Do not conform to the pattern of this world. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, what his will for you is, what his will for your church is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. John chapter 7, verse 37 to 39. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now, this he said about the spirit whom those he believed in him were yet to receive, for as yet the spirit had not been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. So you have Jesus here while he's still alive saying, 
If you are thirsty, you will receive the Holy Spirit. He will meet your need. Jesus promises us this. He says, if anyone thirsts, let him come and drink. Are we as a church thirsty? Are we hungry for our lives to look like it did in Acts? Is that something we want? Are we thirsty to live in a church that has a genuine joy-filled response to the Spirit moving in us? Or are we just rolling through the motions out of obligation? Are we doing it because it's what we've always done, because we want the kids to have a good environment to grow up in, because I've always been here and people will ask questions if I leave, because it's convenient. It provides a really healthy social network. Or are we doing it because the Holy Spirit is within us and we're excited? Are we evangelizing out of a sense of guilt or are we suppressing it out of a sense of discomfort? Or are we excited to tell our co-workers, our fellow students about what God has done for us? Paul preached a few weeks back about responding to conviction. Um, you have the Jews who are being told for the first time that Jesus was the Messiah and they go and done crucified him. And it says that they were cut to the heart. And then they said, what shall we do next? So if you're like me reading through this and thinking this doesn't look, my life doesn't look like what the Bible says it should look like all the time. then there's a call to repent and to allow him to begin a new work in us. There's a call here for us to respond in obedience to the conviction of the Holy Spirit, to repent and to live as he has called us to. And it, it's, it's his spirit, and it's, it's that balance which we always, we always get wrong. It's that balance between, yes, it's his spirit that allows us to do it, but we've also got to put ourselves out there and put the hard work in. Are we willing to do it? I'm going to pray. Lord, we fall so far short of your glory. Lord, you have so much better for us than we could ever achieve for ourselves. Lord, would you do something new in us, Lord? Would you build a hunger for a lifestyle that's different, Lord, not just subtly different, but radically different. Lord, would you build in us a hunger, not just for nice people in a comfortable church, but for radical love, for generosity that's financially unthinkable, Lord. Would you build in us a hunger for something that's out of this world, for obedience to you, Lord? Lord, and would you give us your spirit? Would you refill us? Lord, you said when you were washing the apostles' feet, you said that the body is washed, but sometimes the feet need to be rewashed. So, Lord, we just come before you this morning, this evening, rather, and we, we ask that you would renew our spirits, renew our minds, Lord. In your name, amen.